Good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema brought to you by Dark Matter TV. Dark Matter TV is a streaming platform where you can find not just current genre entertainment and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and action, but also classic content that takes you back to the great old days of late night cable and finding those cult and classic films that they just don't make anymore. Available for download on Android or Apple or visit darkmattertv.com. It's free, it's fun, and it's gonna grow. As most of you know, I'm uh, starting a limited uh, sub-series here on my personal adventures with cinema and trying to avoid it from when I was a kid and early into this industry all the way up to now and in my present state and where I'm at. So um, I'm continuing. I left you with a cliffhanger on the uh, episode 60 uh, previously of where I was at at the time as a boy around eighth grade uh, getting my first silent film camera. Here's here's your brief recap. And uh, starting my first, what I call my first feature film, my feature length film, which was shot in uh, eighth grade back between 1980 and 81. So I'm going to recap just real quick and uh, take you through this because I also have some, some great audio clips of, of some of the people uh, that were involved in this. And uh, mostly from my, my reading teacher from eighth grade, Donna Haddon. And she was the one that really made me think about making a feature film instead of a, a play. I think it would be a better film than a play. That's what I think. So let's go back a little bit. I had left off with Spedwoman and uh, starting to make my own silent comedy films with my Super 8 silent camera, my Kodak silent camera. We originally thought of remaking Mad Monster Party, the Rankin-Bass classic, if you guys remember that, the stop-motion Rankin-Bass classic. And uh, we were going to make this into a stage play for our school. And that's what I thought would work. I have no idea how we were going to pull off sets or anything like that. And first, let me give you the layout a little bit. Uh, our middle school was one of the last of what they call these open-concept classrooms. In other words, uh, the middle school was comprised basically of two gigantic circles and it had no windows and most of all inside it had no walls so the grades were separated by like coat racks tote tray holders and no lockers tote trays like cubbies and uh, bookshelves so if you're sitting in seventh grade you could look over the bookshelf right into eighth grade and you, when you split for lunch and everything, could talk to the eighth graders as you're walking right by side by side. So they weren't really classrooms, but more learning areas is what they called them. The place was a constant hive. And looking back on it now, it's amazing that I learned anything. This was supposed to be part of this whole uh, rethinking of education and the, the open classroom concept. Uh, the TV studio was actually positioned beneath the gym. So imagine what you're gonna be dealing with with sound because it's all day long and there are always gym classes in there. So you were constantly making things uh, with, with the sound of the gym overhead. And I'm gonna play you some clips from this actual movie so you can understand exactly what I'm talking about. I was gonna make this play version, a live action play of Mad Monster Party. Here is Donna Haddon. Uh, talking about how she came to this project and talking about how this all worked. So it's really cool to hear her voice and to be able to put her into this podcast. He had been begging me for some, some weeks to 
make a, uh, a film, of a live film, of uh, the cartoon version of Mad Monster Party. And I said, oh, all right, I'll watch it. So I turned it on, and at first I just went right on painting and just listened to it. And then I got kind of intrigued, so I came down off the steps and sat on the couch and looked at it and began to see that it actually could be done. And so uh, I went back to school, and uh, we decided that we would make Mad Monster Party. You have the TV studio downstairs. We could do all the blocking and all the rehearsing during exploratory. And when you get to the jungle scene, you could use the woods all around the school. So I would try to do things at school which uh, involved drama, but had never thought of film until Ruth and this gang of kids came along. I had a friend who lived down the road, and she had impeccable handwriting, and she volunteered to take the audio tapes of Mad Monster Party and transcribe them into a script. So let's look at that for a minute, because I kind of preceded Hollywood with just the blatant remake kind of thing. There, there was no creativity involved in this whatsoever. It was, I once sat in front of the television with a tape recorder, an audio tape recorder, and I just pointed it, sat there very closely and watched this movie with the tape recorder at the speaker of our 25-inch Magnavox tabletop TV and uh, recorded the sound. And then at one point, I had actually illustrated the movie. I drew it all out to make my own comic because, again, this was before people really had VCRs in, in their homes. It wasn't a commonplace thing. It was something you dreamed about. So I would have to replay the movie in my head. My friend took the audio tapes, and she just simply wrote it all out. And her handwriting was just as good, if not better, than typing it. And she spent the entire summer doing this. So we were gonna remake Mad Monster Party and we're gonna turn it into a great theatrical experience in our school. Our stage in that school was like a, a almost like a Greek amphitheater. It was just this half circle that came out with a pit of seats around it. No curtain, no side wings, no nothing to, to change sets or scenery, no, no nothing. So how are we gonna pull this off? Well, that's what Mrs. Haddon said. And Mrs. Haddon said, have you ever considered making a movie? I think it would be better film than play. That's what I think. I, I was just kind of like, no, I didn't think that would be possible. She goes, well, you were with my exploratory at the end of seventh grade. She goes, why don't we make this our exploratory project and let's make your movie. Now, our TV studio had a three camera setup, all black and white, and they recorded on reel to reel videotape. So that's how far we're going back. It had a very crude lighting grid in its ceiling, but again, positioned directly underneath that gymnasium. So I thought, we're going to do this. Now, the script had absolutely no creativity at all, as I had said. It was a straight transcription from the original Mad Monster Party. So I didn't change anything up. I didn't reposition characters. Somehow, on the eighth grade level, we were going to recreate Dr. Frankenstein's castle, a jungle uh, special effects to turn uh, you know, people into bats and, and all of this stuff. How? I don't know. We got my friends together and I said, sign up for Exploratory and I want you guys to be part of this. Because again, as I had said in episode 60, I was that kid who got 
everybody in the neighborhood to do something. We, whether it was, you know, what we're going to do today in the summer to like, uh, I had mentioned before creating a haunted forest in, in our woods next door to our home. We lived in a very rural neighborhood. It was up to me to kind of cast this whole thing. Well, I had a best friend at the time and he had this kind of all shucks, Jimmy Stewart, Tom Hanks kind of thing going. He was a good looking kid, very flirty. And I, I wanted him as Dr. Frankenstein's nephew, Felix Flanken. I'm invited to an island in the Caribbean to witness a scientific first, a new discovery. The catch was getting Francesca, who was played by Gail Garnett in the animated film. She supplied the voice and she was this redheaded, big busted bombshell. By all accounts, uh, today the, the perfect person to play Francesca would be Christina Hendricks from Mad Men. Uh, and I see a lot of that online where people are like, oh, if they ever did a live action, she should be Francesca. And just look her up and you'll understand what I mean. Compare the, the original Francesca from 1967, the model, to the actress and you'll understand. I, of course, was going to play Dr. Frankenstein and I gave the plum role of the Phyllis Diller character to my friend who transcribed uh, the script because she did have an excellent personality in the way of a sense of humor. She was very funny. She was boisterous. She could definitely pull off Phyllis Diller. I had this all figured out, and we're going to make this great thing. But Bruce was the one who was gung-ho, straight ahead, let's go, uh, nothing will stop us. And I didn't think we'd ever finish the film. We worked all year long on it, and we did finish it. So the catch was finding a Francesca. And there is an underlying uh, motivation here. If you've seen the original Mad Monster Party, there is a cat fight. And uh, Francesca pulls down the dress of Phyllis Diller and Phyllis Diller rips off this very beautiful uh, Japanese kind of style uh, satin dress. And these two women fight in their underwear. Well, I thought, well, we're going to do this. I mean, I, I already had a taste for Benny Hill and girls being stripped regularly in Benny Hill's movies. We're going to do the same. So I got to find the hottest chick that I can. And there was one girl in our class who was kind of like uh, Cher. Uh, she was just known as... Tony. Her full name was Tanetta, but they called her Tony. And that's all you ever knew her by was Tony. And she was drop dead gorgeous, a cheerleader. She was a brunette. She wasn't a redhead. And here's the irony. We actually had a girl named Connie who looked, I'm telling you, like the eighth grade version of Francesca. She had the flaming red hair. She was beautiful. And she even had the Marilyn Monroe beauty mark on her cheek. And I approached Connie. Connie wanted nothing to do with it. She's like, no, I don't act. I don't want to be in front of a camera. No, thanks. No, no, no. She declined, declined, declined. But I turned right to Tony because I thought this is star power. If Tony says yes, I've got something here. So even at this young age, I understood the appeal of star power. Tony did not. She was a great friend and she said, look, I want to help you out. And then she said, wait a minute, I get my dress ripped off. And it's like, well, yeah, she's like, oh, I don't, I don't think so. And, and quite frankly, now uh, looking back on it, how are you going to do that when you're in eighth grade? What parent is going to approve that? Yes, you can rip my daughter's dress off. So we ended up casting it with someone else and, and that was fine. Um, I wanted another girl. There was kind of like this, this whole personal tug of war behind the scenes. But anyway, we cast this movie. And we had all my friends play all these different characters. My brother was going to play the Hunchback of Notre Dame. This is where cinema kind of comes into play because what I really should have done is sat down and found a way to kind of, 
I don't know, like restructure this thing to adapt it better and maybe even change some things up. But I didn't. I thought, you know, damn it, I'm going right out. I'm going to bulldoze this thing right down and I'm going to make this. We were learning. We were all learning together. I'd never done a film. I'd done a lot of drama, but I'd never done a film. So we were all learning together. And the big thing that I remember is just that togetherness, that that uh, that automatic teamwork kind of thing, where we, we had our arguments and we had our, our, our trials and tribulations, but it was just, it was mostly just that the film kind of pulled us on and we, and we, we just each did whatever we were good at and, and tried to get it done. And I had this girlfriend at the time, a beautiful, tall, blonde girl who um, was absolutely mortified by all of this. And she said, I remember the first day you shot and you came out of the bathrooms in the white wig because I had to look old and the spectacles and the white lab jacket, which, by the way, had Grumman on the back. Somebody brought it in. Uh, somebody worked in a garage or something like that. And they brought in a, a white Grumman jacket, but we never shot Dr. Frankenstein from the back, I don't believe. So the Grumman label never showed up. Felix Blankton is a mere human. And he's unaware of the nature of our little gathering. But he also happens to be my nephew. And she said, I was mortified. She goes, I always felt you were on the edge of popularity. But when I saw you come out dressed like that and walking through the hallways in the school on your way down to the studio, she goes, I was embarrassed to be your girlfriend. But to me, I didn't care. We're making a movie. The hardest part was understanding production value at the time. I was kind of like, look, we just got to do whatever we have to do to get this done. So there were some old stage uh, backdrops painted on wood. They were big panels. And we kind of like even turned them on their sides. I'm going to provide a link to this movie. Uh, I'll provide it in my show notes. It, if you actually have the time, maybe you can watch it on your phone while sitting on the toilet. That, that might be the most enjoyable way to watch this. We took these panels. Windows are going sideways, all because we thought we were going to create the illusion of, you know, a, a castle, a castle hallway. You're not going to do that, especially underneath a gymnasium. In addition to that, I didn't understand also the idea of close-ups. Everything, although it was shot on three cameras, all three cameras were basically the same distance away. So everything was shot in kind of a master shot. Like there were no punch-ins or close-ups. I, I wasn't doing that. And I'm really not sure, looking back on it now, if there really was any kind of editing that could go on. It was reel-to-reel -reel tape, and I don't think they had any type of editing system. They had fades, they had a control panel, like a switch panel that you could raise up and down uh, the, the handle to, to do a crossfade or a dissolve, but I think you almost had to do all of your editing and camera stuff right in the camera while it was happening, almost live like television. I don't think there really was any post-production that was available. I didn't understand that really I should position one camera close and they should move. All the cameras were on like tripod wheels. So you could move these things around. Here's the other thing. Everybody was outfitted with wired microphones. So you clip these mics. They weren't lobs. They weren't wireless. And you clip these things and they had like 25 foot wire lengths. So you're on leashes. And there are times you clearly see the kids walking and picking up their microphone as if it's part of their wardrobe to move around so somebody doesn't trip over it or step on it. It's, it's really quite embarrassing. The next thing 
were the special effects. There's a scene in the original film several times where Count Dracula turns into a bat. So how are we going to do this? Well, I had learned by editing on my own camera, the, the film camera. So I learned how to edit in camera first because otherwise on film, what I was doing was I was sitting at home with scissors and cutting the frames with scissors and splicing with scotch tape is really what it was. But on videotape, you can't do that. But I understood the power of stopping the camera, moving the actor out of the way and positioning your effect, resume recording, and you got a boop kind of thing where boom, somebody turns into something, someone appears or someone vanishes. So I tried that on video. And I remember when the one actor had to turn into Count Dracula and I think he climbed up on a milk crate because we were supposed to be on the docks of some port and I think all we had was some construction paper sign. Somehow the audience is supposed to understand that we're on a, on a dock. And I remember the sound effect was from the soundtrack to the movie Popeye. I had it on vinyl. And we actually had a microphone playing over a portable record player, a turntable, just to get the opening part of that track. And if you listen, you can hear the scratching of the vinyl and everything. And that was happening live. So this is like putting on a live, almost like a video radio show where everything is happening in real time. And so when the actor had to jump, he jumped up, we yelled, cut. Okay, the camera stopped. And then we resumed with this construction paper bat on a string and it just all it does is go up it doesn't even flutter it doesn't fly it's all dreadful but damn it if i just wasn't proud of all of this and when you see this thing and and how badly it was shot and then we had to go outside to shoot what were supposed to be the jungle scenes supposed to be some caribbean island and instead we use the woods that were around the school where the kids are outside for recess uh, for exploratory, they're doing their sports. You can clearly see them and hear them. And the highway. Everybody must have had himself quite a time last night. There was nothing but a huge pile of leftovers in the dining room. Yes, I wonder who it was. This will be our best convention ever. Without it to spoil the fun and my nephew present, this will truly be a momentous occasion. And I remember that they shot the outside sound with like this sound gun. It had like a clear plastic dish. It looked like a satellite dish on a boom and that's how they recorded the outside sound and the outside video was recorded on a porta pack so there had to be some kind of editing involved here because they had to take that tape and mesh it with what was going on reel to reel so forgot about that we had a problem also to show you how cynical i was of just get the movie done our lead francesca got sick halfway through the shoot and she had to be hospitalized she turned out to be okay but it took her out of commission. We had to replace her. And I thought, well, we've just got to do this. And I hired another girl to play the same role in the same movie. So you just run from this one actress who then just simply vanishes and this other girl shows up and the audience, I guess, is supposed to assume that this is the same actress. Then the girl who was in the hospital got out of the hospital and came back. And... <laughs> We replaced the replacement back with the original actress. So you have this original girl, stand-in, original girl at the very end. And, and you know what? I don't think anybody even really freaking noticed. To me, I noticed, and, and it's just absolutely horrible. 
And I learned even right there and then, like, you can't be doing this. You've got to do it right. One of the other things is, is at the, the end of the original film, the island blows up. Dr. Frankenstein creates this potion where, like, you know, one drop can blow up a tree. Uh, it's like, you know, super nitroglycerin. So a whole vial of this stuff would blow up the whole island. And, and that's what happens at the end. How were we going to do this? We were doing, I guess, the last scene. We had to blow up an island. We blew the island up, but it didn't work the way we thought it was going to work. And still, when you see it on film, you can see that it's it's a low-budget film working as best it could. And I had a friend who, you know, in eighth grade, everybody's an expert on, on what they like. And uh, he was a self-proclaimed, you know, demolition explosions expert. And he had like this room full or shed full at home of firecrackers, fireworks, M80s, cherry bombs, the whole thing. And it was almost like, you know, you could just see him like opening up a trench cone. Like, what do you want? You want cherry bombs? You want a pipe bomb? Uh, what, what do you want? You know, you, you want a quarter stick? I got it all. Just name your poison. And he promised he could bring us in a cherry bomb to blow up the island. Now, that's not easy to do even in 1981, because you have to get school permission. We had a wonderful school principal, very progressive guy named Dr. Harrickle, and God bless this man, he was wonderful. And Mrs. Haddon took us, she said, you need to understand how to negotiate. You need to understand how to present yourself to higher powers. Consider Dr. Harrickle to be a studio executive, and you have to convince him to use this effect. And I, this is all stuff that I learned from, so it was great. And we went in and we sat down with Dr. Harrickle in, in the principal's office with Mrs. Haddon and myself and my friend who transcribed the script. We pled our case to Dr. Harrickle to allow us to bring in this explosive and to be used to blow up what would be a model island. We are going to create this island out of mud and, and sticks and weeds and, and all that kind of stuff. Son of a gun if Dr. Harrickle didn't agree. He said, you make a great point. This must be supervised. Mrs. Haddon would be the supervisor. And you look back on it now and you go, holy shit, this would never happen today. So the island was basically this giant mud pie, roughly the size of a personal pan pizza. And it was placed on an oar. I don't know why we figured that, but we had a creek, a stream that ran alongside the school. So we went down into this culvert where this stream was, and we found a deep spot. Well, a couple of the kids knew how to build dams because back then you knew how to dam up a creek, and I certainly did too. So we built this dam to build the water up higher so we could put the island into the water on the oar so that just the island showed in the water, but the oar would not. And that really didn't work out well. But then the cherry bomb would be fitted into the middle of the island, covered up except for the fuse. So when it exploded, it would blow the... Now, here's the thing. Someone's got to hold that oar. And some kid did. It was a kid. We're talking, what, four feet? Maybe that that oar was? And this is a cherry bomb that's going to go off. And, and there, look, there were stones and sticks and everything in this big mud pie. When that thing blows, we never even thought of eye protection. And I know Mrs. Haddon didn't. There was nobody down there with goggles because the zooms on these cameras weren't that great back then. You had the camera right there as well too. It was Mrs. Haddon supervising, no kids with safety goggles. And we placed this oar with the island on top of the water, sunk it down so the oar disappeared and we lit the cherry bomb. 
and it went off and it was one take. It was a one and done and it went off. I don't know what the hell it was. I mean, you look at it now and you go, what is that? And then the best part is the island blows up and what's left of the island, you can see the ore, it comes out of the water because whoever was holding that ore, they flinched and then they drop it below the surface. And it's supposed to be this dramatic moment. I remember Mrs. Haddon saying, oh, it's supposed to be this great moment. These two maple leaves come floating right by and they're bigger probably than what the island was. And we left it. There was no editing it out. That's the way that it worked. And we finished the film. And our rowboat at the end, which I'm going to play for you, uh, here is the rowboat scene at the end with that really, really bad gym sound over top when Felix is comforting Francesca. And I'm telling you, that sound that you hear, all that cacophony in the background, that's the gymnasium above us. It's all over, my darling. We're going home now. My place is much. Two rooms in the front of the medicine cabinet. But we'll be married in pretty soon, a bunch of little finders will be running around. Thank you. What is it? What can I say? I can't marry you. Well, you can't? You don't love me? Yes, I do. That's why I won't marry you. And then we had to debut it. And how we debuted it was we had learning areas. So we had the eight mountain learning area. And that was the weird part of the school. We had two fifth grades, two sixth grades, two seventh grades, two eighth grades. And they divided these grades by houses called Mountain House and Lake House. And they fostered this rivalry between us to say, well, you know, Lake is smarter than Mountain and Mountain was better than Lake. And this went on forever. It makes a real difficult time when you get up to the high school in ninth grade when Mountain House and Lake House are merged together and you literally do not know half your class. There were barriers. I mean, Lake House was one circle on one hemisphere of of the school and Mountain was on the other. And the only time you really got together were for sporting events or school assemblies. So you really didn't know a lot of people and at recess. But for Eight Mountain, we're going to show Mad Monster Party and it was on the last day. They rolled out these big Magnavox TVs on carts, if you remember that. And they could plug them in with these coaxial cables right into these big cement pillars in the center of the areas. And they rolled out like five TVs and they rolled them into all the areas, connected them up. And I sat there with my friends and my then girlfriend at the time. And here's the best part. They loved it. So many people were like, oh my God, you made a movie. I thought it was terrific, even though in my heart of hearts, I knew it was pretty bad. That's like my first teenage brush with cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A, because I knew I could have done better, but I didn't because I chose the pathway of now I've just got to simply get this done. My girlfriend uh, at that time, she said to me, she goes, I was wrong. She said, you, you did it. And that was the big thing. I finished it. And I think that's the most important takeaway out of this whole story and episode is I started out and I finished it. Now you have to go back and relearn everything to understand that it's, it's more than just finishing. What you have to do now is make sure that it's good. So the lesson here is, folks, get out there and make your movie, no matter how young you are. Set out to finish. Follow through is everything. But then again, so is production value. Don't settle. 
It's more than just finishing the movie. It's also making something good that is entertaining. I will redeem myself with one thing. As bad as this was, it sure seemed to entertain my friends. And maybe they were just really being nice. I also got a Cardboard Academy Award presented to me uh, by my cast. And uh, I thought that was terrific. And as a matter of fact, I'm looking at it right now as it still sits on my desk from 1981. And I have a photo of it as well, too. Uh, that is really it for today's sub-series and limited series on my personal growth with cinema. Uh, next week's episode will go back to how Spedwoman developed and a real battle with cinema there. This is Harrison Smith, thanking you again for your time. And I look forward to reminiscing and talking with you next week. Check out my cinema blog on horrorfuel.net and download Dark Matter TV for your Apple or Android devices.